Longest Shortest Time is brought to you by Invitae. Your genes can tell you if you're 12% French or 6% Italian. They can also tell you a lot about your future health. When you take an Invitae genetic test, they search for meaningful health information, like whether you're at an increased risk for inherited cancer or heart disease. Based on your results, you may be able to take steps to potentially lower that risk. Learn more by visiting Invitae.com. That's I-N-V-I-T-A-E dot com. I have obsessed over my childbirth a lot, like to an unhealthy degree. My daughter was born four years ago, and, and even now, I still find myself daydreaming sometimes, you know, playing the movie of what happened over and over in my mind, and, and I get stuck at certain points. I just fixate over whether I could have made a different choice, you know, right there or, or there, and things would have gone differently, been less traumatic. We'll get to the choices in a minute, but, but first... I just want to fill you in on what happened and what I wish had happened. So if you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll know that I had an episiotomy. Um, you know, that's where they cut a part of your vaginal tissue called your perineum. Um, and I've talked about that here before. But the thing I haven't really gone into is I've been wondering all of these years, should I actually have gotten a more aggressive intervention? Should I have gotten a C-section instead? I'll tell you why. Um, my episiotomy was not your average episiotomy. The stitches broke apart, and um, a week after my daughter was born, I had to be recut and stitched. Um, I couldn't walk for months. I got PTSD, horrific flashbacks. Um, and somewhere along the way, either in the first surgery or the second, I got some nerve damage, which was extremely painful and wasn't properly diagnosed for three years. Um, and given all of that, I couldn't help but wonder... Would I have healed better if I had been cut in my gut instead of my perineum? You know, that this dark, mysterious place where, where nobody can really see what's going on. So, so back to my choices. Um, there's one choice that I think I could have made differently, which would have likely ended in me having a C-section. And that is, um, I could have stuck with my doctor, um, the obstetrician I originally signed up with, instead of switching to a midwife. So um, when I first got pregnant, you know, I signed up with an OB, uh, but then um, I found out that at Pennsylvania Hospital, where I delivered, um, they have this system where you get any one of the nearly 40 doctors that are on call um, when you arrive, and that doctor is not necessarily in your doctor's practice. And chances are good, in fact, that you've never even met that doctor. You know, I, I liked my doctor, but I did not at all like the idea of giving birth with a complete stranger. So I left my doctor and chose to go with a midwife practice instead. Um, with the midwives, you could still get any of them, but there were only nine of them. And I'd met pretty much everyone at one checkup or another. And I really loved the idea of natural childbirth. And, you know, midwives support natural childbirth. Um, you know, I, I love this idea that with the right kind of support and, and barring any emergencies, of course, you could give birth um, without medications or surgery. But the thing is, the person who gave me my episiotomy was a midwife. And, and sometimes I think, if I'd only stuck with my doctor in the first place, I would have probably wound up with a C-section. Because, you know, um, doctors are more likely to recommend C-sections than midwives. And, and everything would have turned out better. And the crazy thing is, if I had stuck with that doctor, I would have gotten her. You know, of all the 40 doctors I could have gotten, it would have been her. 
When I was on the elevator on my way up to the labor and delivery floor, she was riding it up too, about to begin her shift. I remember us kind of like eyeballing each other. At first, you know, I, I couldn't figure out who she was. It's, it's like when you see a movie star and you can't quite place them. But then she looked at me and, and said, congratulations. Um, and, and then said, you used to be my patient. And then I realized who she was. And, and I was like, what are the chances? You know, I would have gotten her after all. And later, after everything went down with, with my labor, I was beating myself up over leaving her because the way I saw it, you know, I would have gotten her and I would have gotten the C-section and I would have avoided three years of misery. Some, some people wonder, why can't women just let their birth stories go? It's in the past, get over it, move on. Um, but the thing is, when your birth story is traumatic, it doesn't just have an impact on the day your child is born. It has an impact on your mothering. It has an impact on your feeling of self-worth, your sex life, your relationship with your partner, maybe for as long as you live. Women with Alzheimer's are reported to still remember their birth stories. So, so no wonder we go back and ask ourselves over and over, could I have done something differently? Normally, uh, at this point in the show, I would tell you whose story we're about to hear, some mom or dad or couple. Today's story is about me. It's about me answering the questions, should I have had a C-section? And are there any choices I could have made that would have ended in a less traumatic childbirth? But it's also about you, because I hear from a lot of you who have these kinds of questions, too. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank. For me, what happened when my daughter was born really shattered my faith in natural childbirth. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of birth stories and many women who have had long traumatic labors that ended in C-section have told me that the C-section was the least traumatic part of the whole ordeal. You know, that, that they'd wished they'd just gone and done that in the first place. And every time I hear someone say that, I think, yeah, I should have had a C-section. In hindsight, would a C-section have been better for you? That's a really good question. This is Megan Donaghy. And I'm a nurse midwife. My nurse midwife, the one who delivered my daughter, Sasha, and also the one who gave me my episiotomy. I had questions for Megan, lots of questions, questions that I wanted to ask face to face. Megan works at Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia, and we don't live there anymore. We live um, a couple hours north. So back in December, we drove down to Philly. And as soon as we got there, it started snowing out of nowhere, a giant snowstorm that nobody had predicted. And it was so weird because it was snowing like that the last time we were driving to Pennsylvania Hospital. It's snowing just like when you were born. The day Sasha was born. Look, she's right there. I thought you might like to meet Sasha oh before gosh, we talked. Hi. It's Sasha. so nice to meet you. This is Megan. Hi. I helped you come out of your mommy. Megan met Sasha again, um, this time as an almost four-year-old. Can I get a cupcake with chocolate frosting on Then Megan brought me to the midwife break room where we asked another midwife who was eating a TV dinner to leave um, so we could talk privately. So I'm going to just, like, we're just going to run through my birth story first. The thing you need to know here is, um, of all nine of the midwives in Megan's practice, she was my absolute favorite. 
I don't know if it's just because we both have curly red hair, but um, I felt like we had a real connection. Like leading up to the birth, actually, I was um, late. And um, I was trying to hold out a little bit, <laughs> if, if that's possible, because, uh, you know, in the, in the midwife practice where you are, you get who you get, who, whoever's on duty. And I really wanted you. <laughs> and I, like, remember coming in one time and, um, and like, ran into you. And um, you were like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be on a lot, like, next week. And I was like, <gasps> oh, I really hope it happens next week. <laughs> and I remember like when I was going into labor being like, oh, it could be Megan. When I went into labor, I did not get Megan. When I got to the hospital, another midwife was there. And, and you know, it was fine. Um, I felt lucky, actually. The special room for natural childbirth was free. Um, it had a bed that, that looked like a regular bed and dim lighting and a hot tub. I labored in the tub for a while, and when I got out, the midwife said she thought it would be a good idea to break my water. And um, she kind of like goes goes at me with you know the crochet hook thing, and my water breaks, and there's meconium. Meconium is the baby's first poop, and suddenly things change. I I, I get told meconium means that there's fetal distress, and um, you no longer are allowed to be in the birthing suite. You have to you have to go to one of the regular rooms and there's kind of all this commotion switching me to this other room. And I think I felt the panic and, and my labor stalls. And there's this moment where I'm like on the new bed and um, the other midwife, the midwife who was with me was, was encouraging me to be on hands and knees. And I was just like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And and she was like, yes, you can, you can, you are doing it. And I was like, I can't. I didn't want to go full on epidural, I guess, because I still wanted to be able to feel what was happening. So I asked for an IV drip, which didn't numb the pain, but but made me really sleepy, you know, unable to stand up or or even keep my eyes open, really. A nurse that I hadn't met before sat with me um, holding my hand. I don't think I ever even looked at her face. When they checked me again, my dilation still wasn't progressing, so the midwife said they were going to give me just the eensiest, weensiest bit of Pitocin. Um, that's a drug used to speed up labor. And the Pitocin sent me into these crazy 10-minute-long contractions with just a few seconds in between. Now, if you've never had contractions, the thing you need to know about them is that what gets you through them is knowing that they will end, like like in a minute or two. But when they don't end... You feel like this is your new forever. I, I truly thought I was going to die. My husband pressed the call button for help, but it, it turned out to be broken. I was screaming. My, my husband was crying. He asked me if I wanted him to go look for the midwife, and, and I told him not to leave. Finally, the midwife came back, and she asked what I was feeling about an epidural now, and I said, I want it. Took a while to get it, but once I did, I, I calmed down enough that I could take a nap. But at some point, that midwife came into me and was basically like, "So you've been here long enough that my shift has ended." And I had gotten there at the beginning of her shift. Wow. And Megan is the next midwife, and she's so excited to be coming in here. <laughs> and um, 
and it, and and I just sort of remember her like whispering that to me. Megan is coming, and it changed everything for me because things had been kind of nightmarish for a while, and I was like, but it's Meg- Megan is going to be the one <laughs> to deliver her. And I think that things did progress from there, right? They did progress. Megan checked me, um, told me I had dilated fully to ten centimeters, which made me feel like the epidural was the best thing ever. And then you pushed. It was time to push, and you pushed for a long time. And you were very strong. And I don't know where you found the energy, because I know you had to have been so exhausted. In case you're wondering, no, it does not make me feel better to hear how strong I was. It just makes me feel like no matter how hard I tried, I was doomed. But you pushed so hard. You did such a great job for a very long time. How long was it? It was three and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very long time to push. You left out, to a part of how she actually got out. Do you remember? <laughs> I remember that she was facing directly up, which is very interesting because they don't often come out that way. And that is a really difficult way for them to come down into the birth canal. Difficult because the widest part of the baby's head is trying to fit through the cervix first. This position um, where the baby is facing up is called posterior or or sunny side up. It tends to make for an especially long and painful labor. So the part part that I think you left out is that um, you looked at me at one point and you said, I um, think I should give you an episiotomy. I vaguely remember that. But yeah, I mean, I'm assuming, since I don't remember the details... Since we rarely do that, the only indications for doing that would be that it looks like your body's going to tear on its own badly. And at any time that you're pushing for that long, the tissue is already in a kind of compromised, like traumatic kind of situation. And so, yeah, I think that that's why the decision was made was that it was going to help your body better off than what was going to happen if you kept pushing, which mm-hmm. would have taken longer and also done more damage to your bottom. So I, I want to like tell you some of the reasons why I really wanted you to be my midwife. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I, um, I really liked that I felt like you were on my side. Like things like you let me eat peanut butter crackers, you know, and you and you wound up um, you wound up letting me push half an hour longer than I think I was supposed to. Because I remember this moment where like through the doorway, I saw like an attending physician walk by and you kind of like gave them the thumbs up. And then you kind of as an aside said to me we're supposed to stop at three hours, but I'm going to let you go for another half hour. (laughs) And I was so grateful, but I also wonder why did you let me do those things? That's a really good question. So it's not that we're supposed to stop at three hours. We just like to um, consult with each other, kind of even doctor to doctor will do it. Um, And we like to just make sure that everything's still safe and get another opinion. And so what the thumbs up was is that the baby's coming out. Mm-hmm. I mean, we only let people push for that long because we're seeing progress, progress, progress. Some people, they push for three hours and nothing happens. And I knew that she was in a, in a you know, suboptimal position and that it was going to take longer for you. 
What about with like eating peanut butter crackers? Because I my sort of my understanding is that you're not supposed to allow people to eat in the hospital. Right. I mean, in general, we we don't want you to have much in your stomach in labor. There's multiple reasons for that. But if we think you're going to need a C-section, then we definitely don't want you to eat anything. So I really didn't see that happening for you. So I guess that's probably why I let you have it. Well, so so some of the things that you're telling me, I sort of understood to be like against hospital policy, but it sounds like you're telling me that that's not the Mm -hmm. case. Yeah, technically, I'm not supposed to let you eat. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, okay, I've gone through this scenario over and over in my head and I, I came around and I've got to admit I was asked, I was I was questioning um, your decisions and I was like well should I have been sent for a c-section I know I wonder if because Megan and I had this connection I wonder if she really wanted to um, please me as her patient and knew so, that I so badly wanted a vaginal delivery and was the reason I got the episiotomy instead of a C-section because Megan wanted to, like, make me happy? Well, that's a really valid question, but no. <laughs> I've taken care of my own sisters, and I don't let that affect my decision-making. I think that if you saw anyone else, physician, other midwives, home birth midwives, they all would have recommended the same thing because there is kind of a formula as different as births can be and as different as labors can be. There is a formula of things that we try, but there's there was no indication at any point that a C-section would have been safer for you when you were in labor. But in hindsight, sure, you know, it's easy to say that. The decision you ultimately made was l- likely a much better decision for yourself and your baby. That's Saraswati Vedam. She's been a midwife for three decades. She's also a professor of midwifery and researches maternity care. Right now, she's doing studies on providers and their decision-making in childbirth. I called her up because I was still stuck on my elevator question, C-section versus episiotomy. Even though Megan said it didn't seem like I needed a C-section at the time, I still wondered, would it have given me a better outcome? And C-section is a common procedure, so common that over 30% of women in this country deliver that way. So what are the risks, really? Serious, serious hemorrhage, uterine rupture, anesthetic complications, shock, cardiac arrest, kidney problems, breathing problems, clotting problems, infection. Uh, When you put those all together and and add death, maternal death, there's three times the risk with a C-section versus a normal vaginal delivery. Saraswati is talking about a recent study suggesting that, yes, C-section is a life-saving procedure in certain circumstances, but that it is overused with first-time low-risk moms. The paper was put out by the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Let me say that again. The study saying that C-sections are unnecessarily putting moms and their babies at risk was put out by obstetricians, doctors. This is the sort of thing you usually hear from midwives. And I've got to say, reading that report completely rocked my elevator theory. I mean, it convinced me for sure that I wouldn't have been better off with a C-section. But even more than that, it made me wonder if I shouldn't have had any interventions at all. I mean, if, if you start going down the research path, you will find that doctors are starting to question the frequent use of drugs like Pitocin and Epidural as well. With Saraswati's knowledge of the research, I wanted to get her take on my story. 
Of course, she wasn't there for my labor, so I knew she couldn't tell me for sure what could have been prevented, but I hoped she might be able to at least offer me some clarity. The first thing she suggested is, I might have been better off having my baby at home. Attendants that practice not in a hospital setting often will seek and gain additional um, expertise in those techniques that promote normal physiologic birth because at home we don't have an epidural that we can give you. So we have to get really good at all the things that can help babies turn and help people be comfortable without therapies that would affect your baby. So things like acupuncture. Acupuncture, a deep tub, a remedy called water papules. Saraswati says these are things that could have been great alternatives to my first hospital intervention, the IV drip. Remember, I I asked for that when I was told that my labor was stalled and my contractions had gotten very intense. Saraswati says that that intensity could have actually been a sign that my labor was about to take off. The midwife said that when she was born, she was facing her straight up, which she very rarely sees. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so it was a long labor. I means you have a good pelvis. (laughs) I really. Yeah, because if you can, most babies who are posterior will rotate when once they hit the med pelvis. uh, Will sometimes make a forty-five degree turn. Sometimes make a one hundred and thirty-five degree turn just to get itself in a position where it can come out more easily. Babies who come out sunny side up really come out that way means that the mom, the size of her pelvis must have been good enough to let them stay in that position or come out that way. Hmm. Well, okay, so so that's interesting because I felt. Like my my body was really, you know, built wrong. Oh, absolutely not. The fact that you were able to deliver the, your first baby, you know, persistent posterior, with an epidural that too, is great. That's that's a, a, a really, uh, you know, that that bodes well for your future. Wow. Huh. Well, that's that's nice to hear. So 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 just to kind of fill you in on some other stuff. Uh, my midwife at, at some point said, you know, I can see her head coming, but uh, I'm afraid that once she does come out, you're going to really tear badly. So I'm going to give you an episiotomy. And um, Episiotomy has been studied and studied and studied, and I've never seen any rationale to say that you should cut an episiotomy to prevent a tear. Because when you cut an episiotomy, you're by definition cutting through with seven muscle groups join. It's a strong part that normally doesn't just tear on its own unless, you know, it's like like, like uh, cutting the edge of a selvage or of, of a piece of cloth, right? Mm-hmm. Once you snip it, it tears more. And so the kind of tear you experienced and, and the problems you experienced may have been an extension of the, the cut that you had. And we'll never know whether if you hadn't had an epidural, and I'm not saying the decision to have an epidural was wrong, but the fact is you had an epidural. If you had an, ep- had an epidural, you may have been able to be in a different position that would have meant that you didn't tear at all or tore, tore, tore in such a way that was very minimal, right? So I'm uh, just, I'm feeling so, like so confused. I feel like I don't know what to think, you know? I, and this is how I feel every time I talk to somebody else. Like I get swayed so far in one direction, like, oh, I should have had a C-section or, oh, I, I should have, like, now you're making me feel like, oh, I should have, I should have had a home birth, you know? Um, this is this is like stuck you know, in my so, head, and I don't. So know here's how to... here's. Uh, let me see if I can help a little bit. Yeah, there is no should. All right, you made the best decisions that you could at the time with the information that you had. You have different information now. You might make a different choice next time. 
I've heard this a lot that that I did the best I could with the information I had. And, and I believe that, you know, I know I did my best. But the thing I can't get over is that I think my best was wrong. And I don't know if there will be a next time. So I just yearn to go back and change last time. I want to get in a time machine and, and go back four years to when I was pregnant. And, and if I did that, here is what I would know. That interventions can easily cause a chain reaction. That, you know, given everything that had happened in my labor, I, I probably did need the episiotomy. But that's only because I had had the epidural, which I only needed because of the Pitocin, which I needed because of the IV drip. And, and that IV drip was truly elective. And so with that information, I think the choice I'd make now, if I could do it all over again, would be to take interventions off the table and try to have a home birth. But at the same time, um, is that any safer? If you've ever done a Google search on the safety of home birth versus hospital birth, you'll know that there are lots of studies out there and, and they are all conflicting. They read like political propaganda with the results skewing in favor of whoever did the study. So how do we know which ones to believe? One of the things Saraswati does in her research is to study the studies about home versus hospital birth. Yes, I uh, evaluate the quality of studies around um, place of birth and choice of place of birth and women's experience of place of birth. Saraswati and I spent more than half an hour discussing the nuances of the research and how it's almost impossible to do that research. Because to really do it right, you would need to do a randomized controlled trial. So that, that would mean taking a large number of women and assigning them randomly to either have their baby at home or at the hospital. This, this was actually attempted once, and not surprisingly, only 11 women would agree. So, you know, not enough to do the study. But really, Saraswati says, when you look at all of the best available data, it comes down to this. There don't appear to be any significant differences. That's right. The outcomes for home and hospital in terms of infant and mother morbidity and mortality in high-resource countries, at least, seem to be exactly the same. And when I talk about home birth here, I'm talking about planned home births with skilled attendants. So planned home births and planned hospital births appear to have uh, exactly the same outcomes, with the one caveat being there tend to be more aggressive interventions at the hospital. But even then, Saraswati tells me, it really just depends on your attendant. One of the stories I tell uh, is a story of a birth I witnessed many years ago in, uh, in the hallway uh, of the hospital because they were overflowing and didn't have a room. And the woman who was in labor was a very young woman, uh, 12 or 13. And um, she uh, was attended by a certified nurse midwife, uh, but that certified nurse midwife was able to create this lovely, safe uh, environment for her. By She brought a screen out into the hall. She spoke quietly. She created this lovely aura. And it was a very respectful, private, gentle birth. So it isn't all about the building. It is about who's with you and, and how safe you feel, I think. So what kind of words of wisdom do you have for people who are living with with like like me with this like looping of of like could this have been avoided could we have could we go back and could we have changed that mhm mm mhm um i would say the best that they can do is educate yourself about your options because you can change your story 
whether you have a, a, another opportunity to have a birth and do it differently or whether your daughter has a, an opportunity or your friend, you can change your your story and your experience of life by being able to witness and experience uh, physiologic birth that's done on a woman's own steam in a different way. And we all experience certain losses in our um, life. You know, we may not get the partner we want. We may lose the partner we want. We may not have the job we want. We may be far from our families. You know, every, every person experiences certain losses and disappointments in life. Um, but that doesn't mean you ha- that that has to end the story. There are ways. I think you're doing it right now. You're exploring it and using it as an opportunity to educate other people, so other people don't have to experience what you you did. Um, and that's that's a form of healing, healing as well. I am sometimes consumed by what Saraswati said. You know how having another baby could be healing, and the idea of that, you know, of what might feel like a do-over is completely intoxicating. But if there's anything I've learned about childbirth, it's that you never know what will happen. And so I am looking for a way to heal whether I ever have another birth experience or not. I had hoped that talking to Megan and Saraswati would help change my birth story, and I think that it has. Now, when I tell myself the story of the day I became a mom, you know, I don't put myself back in that elevator anymore. You know, I, I, I don't wish for a doctor who would give me a C-section rather than a midwife who gave me an episiotomy. You know, it's, it's not one surgery versus another. Some moms, you know, they, they do need those surgeries because they truly save their lives and, and their babies' lives. But I've come to believe that, that that was not me. Under the right circumstances, you know, maybe at home, maybe a birth center, I think that I could have walked away from childbirth feeling less traumatized, you know, less violated. And it's really hard to come to terms with the fact that that's not my story. But it is empowering to know that it could have been. And and there's a detail that I add now when I run through the story in my mind. And it's something I never thought I'd hear myself say. That my pelvis is good. If you're like me and you wanted a natural childbirth and for one reason or another you didn't get one, I highly recommend going back and talking to your providers to see if you can get some resolution. If you're pregnant and trying to decide where to have your baby and with what type of attendant, I recommend doing your research. Interview the doctors or midwives you're considering and and also read up on the studies. I've posted a link to the C-section study I talked about in this story, as well as some of the studies that Saraswati Vedam has flagged as high-quality research on place of birth at our website. That's longestshortesttime.com. Today's story was the first in a series of stories we're going to be doing on natural childbirth. In fact, all three of our episodes in April will be on that topic. Next up, I tell the mother of this country's natural childbirth movement that she's let me down. That's right, I'm talking about Ina Mae Gaskin, so stay tuned for that. Today's episode was brought to you with support by MailChimp, the people behind Tiny Letter. Tiny Letter, email for writing home about your tiny people. New mom Ness says she'd write home about her 20-month-old who recently pretended to poop out a tiger. 
Support today also comes from diapers.com. Get 20% off your first order at diapers.com or any of their other sites where you can find baby's first diaper, first blanket, first outfit, everything you'll need at first, no matter where you're having your baby with the code LONGEST20. That's LONGEST20. Thanks today to Peter Clowney for editing. Thanks also to Abby Wiseman. Our theme music is by The Batteries Duo. I'm Hillary Frank, back in two weeks at 3 a.m. with a new episode of The Longest Shortest Time. And as always, if you have a story of a surprising struggle in early parenthood that you'd like me to consider for this podcast, go to LongestShortestTime.com and submit your story. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find 10. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Now Prince donated this guitar. <gasps> I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket, worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.